1: hello and welcome to a new episode in the new books and gender studies podcast i'm one of your co-hosts kyle mcmillan and i have the pleasure today of being joined by professor shep melnick of Boston College, um, and to talk about his new book, The Transformation of Title IX, Regulating Gender Equality in Education. Professor, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it was, it's a pleasure to have you today. And, you know, I just kind of want to start out with a quick introduction of your academic background, sort of, you know, how did you end up writing this book about Title
0: IX? Sure. I, I don't study gender studies. I'm a political scientist. Uh, My degrees are uh, in uh, political science from Harvard. I've taught at Boston College for 20 years now, where I'm a Thomas P. O'Neill professor. My work has always been on the intersection of law and politics, courts, administrative agencies and Congress. I started to work on a larger project on what I call the civil rights state. I became interested in the way in which we developed a very large regulatory process regulating discrimination on the basis of race, gender, disability, age, language, but we really haven't understood the extent to which it is both similar to other forms of regulation, but in important ways quite different from it. I previously wrote a book on environmental regulation called Regulation of the Courts, and I wrote a book on entitlement statutes and their interpretation by courts. So now I wanted to look at a different form of government activity and the role that agencies and courts and Congress played. Uh, I originally viewed this section on Title IX to be just one chapter in a larger book, but as I was working on it, more and more happened. We had new regulations Uh, and many court decisions on sexual harassment and sexual assault. Then we had regulations on transgender rights. So the more I studied this, the more there was that was controversial and interesting, and that eventually turned into this book called The Transformation of Title IX. And I really look at it as a form of government activity uh, in which Thousands of educational institutions are regulated by a small office within the Department of Education, and I try to trace through the evolution of this form of regulation.
1: Yeah, and I think a good place to start, you know, I, I'm sure that most of our audience has heard of Title IX and sort of has a working understanding in their own minds of what it is. But do you want to talk about sort of very broadly, what is title nine and how did it come about? Most people associate title
0: nine with college athletics for many years. That was the most controversial part of regulation, but title nine itself sweeps much more broadly. It was originally passed as a little noted section of the omnibus legislation, uh, Education Amendments of 1972, so unimportant that it wasn't mentioned either in President Nixon's signing statement or in the New York Times story the next day. It was uh, it, One reason it was not particularly controversial is that it was enacted on the floor of both houses shortly after Congress sent to the states the Equal Rights Amendment. So this was just kind of chipping away at a larger issue, and the Congress thought that the Equal Rights Amendment would pass very quickly, so this was just one minor step along the way. It became controversial a few years later, mainly over the athletics issue, and that was because athletics is different from almost everything else in education, that we don't say female athletes compete on equal level playing field with the males. Go out for the same team. If you don't make the basketball team because you're not as tall, tough luck. We don't say that. We say rather um, we have a form of separate but equal in athletics because of uh, major physical differences. Uh, And that led to the question of what is equal. And that turned out to be very, very difficult to resolve. So that was the first issue. But um, it had a number of other implications. Um, for admissions to schools, and for a while, uh, employment opportunities by female professors who had been very badly discriminated against for forever. Uh, that eventually was taken over by the EEOC under Title VII and really uh, disappeared from Title IX litigation. Starting about 25 years after The passage of Title IX, the question of sexual harassment was addressed, uh, largely because it had been addressed uh, fairly extensively under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act involving employment discrimination. So slowly, that issue rose to the fore. The uh, Clinton administration was fairly active on this, the Obama administration much more active And finally, uh, the issue that arose with extreme rapidity in uh, the Obama administration, the last term of the Obama administration, was the issue of transgender rights, and that is what constitutes discrimination against transgender students, uh, especially as it relates to sex-segregated facilities. So we saw... Uh, a very slow rise of some of these issues, and then more of these issues becoming controversial within the last five years.
1: Yeah. And you start out your book with a a series of case studies, uh, or at least three of them. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk about, um, you know, why did you choose those three case studies and why do they prove sort of important to how you talk about Title IX? Sure.
0: Uh, there, the three case studies were Pompidiak University in Connecticut involving athletics, uh, the issue of um, uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault. I focused on Harvard, and then um, a, a brief study of treatment of a, a transgender student in Illinois. Matter of fact, I kind of—it's been a while since I wrote that chapter. Um, I know the general issues. I think it was the Illinois case, but actually, the, in some ways, one of the most interesting uh, was the Quinnipiac case, in which the central issue was whether competitive tumbling in cheer can be considered an intercollegiate sport. That seems like an odd issue for a federal judge to decide. But it was a very long opinion uh, that ended up costing the university millions of dollars. And it became an issue because once you take as the standard of equality how many varsity athletes you have, and I actually think it was a bad decision to focus on varsity athletes, then the question becomes – Who is a varsity athlete? What is a varsity sport? Schools started to create new female teams to match their male teams. Uh, And the question then became, what is suitable to be considered intercollegiate sport? The, The judge decided that at least at this point, competitive cheer and tumbling is not a sport. Uh, largely because there wasn't enough organized competition. On the one hand, you can make fun of this, as many people said, is there is no platonic idea, no legal idea of what constitutes a sport. And I think that there's a lot of merit to that argument. On the other hand, and these are cases in which there's always a one hand and another hand. Was that Quinpinacker was always was doing a number of really dubious things to try to increase the number of female athletes? They were triple counting many female track uh, participants, uh, and they had a number of other ways of manipulating their counts um, that really showed they were trying to skirt the law. So these, once you start saying that the main issue is how many varsity athletes do you have? You get into lots of disputes on who is a varsity athlete. That really shows how you go from broad statements of equality of opportunity to very detailed regulatory issues. So that was uh, the first case study. The second was uh, Harvard Law School, which was – trying to put together adequate rules about how charges of sexual assault would be handled. The Department of Education in 2011 and 2014 had very detailed rules about how schools should proceed. Now I just want to uh, take a minute to say that these rules were not announced through standard notice and comment rulemaking – which is what the Administrative Procedures Act required. They were simply announced by in unilateral, dear colleague letters with no opportunity for public comment, no explanation of the basis for them, uh, and no opportunity for judicial review. So that's a, a key component of many of this, these forms of regulation. The rules on procedures for handling sexual assault claims were very controversial one part was the requirement that schools use the preponderance of the evidence standard rather than the more demanding clear and convincing evidence that many schools had used before there were limits on testimony on cross-examination on use of lawyers most schools or many schools including the rest of harvard university eventually said okay we'll adopt these rules harvard law school said no we think that this is a fundamental dilution of due process rights for people accused of very serious misconduct we want to allow more use of lawyers more use of cross-examination at first office of civil rights said no you can't do that Um, eventually the office for civil rights said okay um and there was greater opportunity for the use of lawyers and what? But this was really kind of an unusual case because Harvard said, if people can't afford a lawyer, we will provide it for them. Most schools are not rich enough to do that. Uh, so it really showed there. This was the origin where the first battles in this long struggle over what is adequate due process for people accused of sexual misconduct. One of the things that grew out of that was that some of the most vociferous opponents of the Department of Education's rules uh, were some very articulate, um, quite prominent female law students at Harvard, uh, many of whom taught on uh, feminist law topics, who I think were some of the most eloquent spokesmen for the p- position. That we needed to have a better balance between uh, the concerns for the accused and concern for um, uh, potential victims. So that was uh, the second story, and the third story was the story of the Office of Civil Rights' initial efforts to say that access to sex segregated facilities in public schools, and this was. Um, A public school in Illinois, that uh, they have to be allocated only on the basis of a student's internal sense of gender identity, not on the basis of their biological sex. This court said that any, uh, well, the agency said, and later the court said, that any concern about the privacy of other students must be subordinated to respect for the choices made by transgender students. That uh, eventually um, contributed to the so-called bathroom wars in North Carolina. Uh, Those regulations by the Office for Civil Rights were later withdrawn by the Trump administration. And those issues are now being fought out in federal court. So those were the why those three cases were instructive of what where we are going under Title IX.
1: Yeah, and I think all three of those case studies sort of touch on um, what I think are sort of key terms in your uh, argument and analysis. And you've already sort of touched on one, um, but the three that kind of uh, stuck out to me were, you know, the one that uh, the aforementioned civil rights state. Um, what you call institutional leapfrogging, which is certainly important in your book, and then the three-part test of Title IX. So I think it'd be useful for you to go over those three so the listener can kind of get a sense of, you know, these if they're not sort of uh, brushed up on sort of legal arguments and legal procedures, that could be useful. Sure.
0: So let me start with civil rights state. What I wanted to point out by using this term is that we have a very well-developed set of institutions and rules about discrimination that are, have a certain unity to them, but are also quite distinctive from other forms of government activity. You can think about this in contrast to the welfare state, or maybe similar to welfare state. Uh, We have, a set of programs that are quite diverse, but when you for, for entitlement programs, but you can look at them and you can see that they have a certain character that makes our welfare state in important ways different from the welfare state of European countries. Similarly, I want to say what is how can we conceptualize this broad set of rules that have grown up basically since nineteen sixty four. Before nineteen sixty four, there was no civil rights state. We This was one of the issues that we had debated for decades, even centuries, but the federal government had completely dropped the ball. In 1964, we started to create a very extensive set of regulations, starting with the Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65, the uh, Fair Housing Act of 1968. These were each extended and strengthened over time. And then we took that analogy of race regulation of racial discrimination and applied it to the gender to disability to age to language, so we ended up with a really extensive set of regulations and i couldn 't find any work that looked at the structure of these regulations as a whole, which I found quite surprising so I in the chapter two of the book, I try to give an overview of what these institutions are, how there are important common elements, but also how um, race and gender often differ because the problems are different, uh, and to try to give a sense of who it is that is enforcing these rules, what agencies are involved, and the relationship between courts and agencies in interpreting these important statutes. So that uh, is a very brief overview of the civil rights state. Uh, For institutional leapfrogging, what I argue is that you have this very unusual process in civil rights regulation of both courts and agencies have a a crucial role in interpreting the statutes. The pattern has been for one of the two to take a first step, often in a very small way, then... um, the other institution to add a bit to that. Then the first institution comes back and adds more. And you get this, um, each institution going a little bit beyond the other and strengthening and expanding the regulation at the, at the time that none of them basically acknowledge they're doing anything new. And I must say, this is one of the things that really bothered me about the office for civil rights guidelines is they always claim that they're doing nothing new they're just interpreting previous rules despite the fact that the rules have changed dramatically since the 1970s and this is done without public participation it's done without explanation it's done without looking at costs or opportunity costs uh and they, they this happens because administrators and to some extent judges are committed to the view that nothing new is being done, so they can't explain why they're doing things that are new. So that's the leapfrogging. Um, And the three-part test, um, this is a a really good example of this process of institutional leapfrogging. Three-part test refers to rules set down first in 1979 by the Carter administration that laid out standards for determining whether schools had enough varsity teams. Let me see if I can reproduce the three-part test here. Um, The first was that you have a number of varsity athletes of male and female proportional to the population of the undergraduate student body of males and females. That's the so-called parity test. Second... Uh, uh, part of the three-part test was have you steadily increase a number of female varsity athletes Uh, and the third part of the test was is there some unmet need unmet interest and ability uh, that allows uh, underrepresented sex to create another team so um while this is quite complicated, the point of the regulation was to say that you have to show that you are moving towards this parity standard, uh, that you have to show constant improvement, and that you have not overlooked the, the interests and abilities of students who are on campus. That was announced in 1979 as a clarification of previous regulation. The meaning of the three part test was later expanded by the First Circuit in Brown University versus Cohen. And basically, the court said that simply because there are not students currently on campus who have the interest and ability to form more teams, that doesn't end schools' responsibility because they have to go out and recruit students to create more female teams to overcome the stereotypes that schools have helped to perpetuate. So the parity standard really became the goal at which all schools had to aim, in part because of a clarification of a previous regulation and then a court interpretation of that, Clarification, and then later on, so-called dear colleague letters by the department clarifying what Brown University case meant. So I think that's a good example of the leapfrogging that made the rules more and more strict, especially on the basis of schools have to take affirmative action to overcome stereotypical notions that are common, not just within their campus, but within society at large.
1: Yeah. And I, I, one of my questions that I had it, in terms of institutional leapfrogging, does this uh, procedure sort of this l- legal um, tactic, if you will, happen elsewhere in like regulation?
0: You know, that is a very good question. Um, I've see, it happens in other forms of civil rights regulation. Uh, for example, under Title Seven and Title Six of the Civil Rights Act. It would be interesting to see it, to what extent it does happen elsewhere, but here's the reason why it's probably a little bit less likely, and that is because I think a key feature of civil rights legislation is that courts and agencies have... Approximately equal responsibility, in large part because courts have allowed so-called private rights of action. That is the ability of a private citizen to go to court to enforce a part of a civil rights statute, whether it be Title IX or Title VII um, or Title VI. That gives the courts an unusually large role that parallels the role of administrative agencies. I think that that particular structure of having two co-equal interpreters, which you don't find in most other statutes, they either delegate primarily to the courts or primarily to agencies, that has been one reason why leapfrogging has been so pronounced
1: here. Okay. And, and I think maybe another term that I'm sort of uh, inserting here as well that might be important to go over uh, and then we'll kind of shift our focus to athletics um, is the dear colleague letter. Because I guess for me, uh, I had heard the term, but I, I guess I had never fully understood sort of what it does and sort of what it means within sort of the civil rights state as you lay out.
0: Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, first, I should say that, uh, unlike most people who are in gender studies, I really come at this from uh, a political and legal perspective. Uh, and I, I, have a, I might have a tendency sometimes to talk about things uh, that I don't explain adequate detail. So if I leave anything out, let me know. The uh, Title IX, like Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, gives administrative agencies that distribute federal money the authority to establish rules and regulations to explain what discrimination means and what schools must do to receive federal funds. Rules and regulations are covered by the Administrative Procedures Act of 1946 that lays out the procedures for establishing rules and regulations. It basically says um, you have to propose a regulation, you have to accept comments on it, and then you have to explain why you did or did not accept some of these comments, what changes you made, and then publish a final regulation in the Federal Register. The the courts have interpreted that um, over many, many years to say that you really have to be pretty explicit in responding to all significant comments. You have to provide detailed explanations, both in the proposal and in the final promulgated regulation, and that all of this is subject to what is called a hard-look judicial review. So there is this really pretty elaborate process for rulemaking. On top of that, Title IX says that all of these regulations need to be signed by the President of the United States. That's pretty unusual. It indicates that Congress thought that these were likely to be controversial, and it wanted the president to take responsibility. The last time that the Department of Education issued a regulation under Title IX that went through all of these procedures on a major regulation was 1975. So that was a long time ago. Uh, what they have done in the meantime is to issue, first they call them interpretations, and now they call them dear colleague letters that lay out new interpretations. Um, they're called dear colleague letters because they just take the form of a letter written to the head of all universities, all public school systems, that say, dear colleague, here are the new guidelines. Um, I must. Uh, I've heard many... Uh, college administrators saying they 're not our colleagues, <laughs> they're our regulators, uh, but uh, the dear colleague letter has become the the forum. This really uh, kind of started slowly as far back as the Carter administration It's continued through all regula- all administrations since, but it really took on new power in the Obama administration they basically short-circuited the regular rule-making process. Um, One of the things that I find ironic about these letters is they say, here are the rules. If you have any comments on them, let us know. The original purpose was to have the comments first and then the rules, but we've reversed that. We have the rules and then the comments, if there are any. Um, And uh, the problem is that You really don't get a sense of what the controversies are, what the range of opinions are, what the evidence is until well after these rules have been established. So that's the dear colleague.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, especially for those that listen to this podcast, I think going over those terms is pretty crucial um, because it was was pretty crucial to my reading. So I thought that was an important stopping point.
0: Yeah, let me add one more thing I probably should have said, was that um, last fall, uh, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos gave an important speech on the sexual harassment, sexual assault rules. And one of the things that she said in that speech was the era of the rule by letter is over. And she promised to do the sexual harassment, sexual assault rules going through regular notice and comment, rulemaking. Reporters called me on this and said, well, how long will this take? A few months? And I responded, it's likely to take many months, probably over a year. And I think I was probably um, uh, underestimating the time because it is now March and they haven't even issued a proposed rule. So this is going to drag on for a very long time. That is in part... (laughs) Let me be blunt. That is part because of the sheer incompetence of the Trump administration uh, and the Department of Education. Um, I I, I am (laughs) quite a vociferous um, opponent of the current administration. I have very little trust in them. So that's number one. Number two is that this process is inherently time consuming. And number three because of the, the confirmation process, we don't yet have a assistant secretary of education for civil rights. So until you get the, right, the people in place, it's really hard to keep this going. So will we ever see this form of standard rulemaking being used? I expect we will, but we'll see.
1: <laughs> right. And I, that that's also an important point. And so shifting our focus to athletics, which, as you said at the beginning, is sort of the the most common way that people filter in their minds Title IX or what they think of Title IX. Um, and this actually comes at an interesting point in, in my life as well. I just actually was in Indianapolis for a, a conference and I went to the um, NCAA Hall of Champions, and they highlight sort of, you know, they have a Title IX exhibit, basically. So I think it's important to go over sort of what does Title IX do in athletics specifically, or what what's it supposed to do? And then what has happened to athletics since Title IX?
0: Right. Let me, let me start off by saying that when I originally wrote about Title IX, I thought I was going to have – An example of a good form of regulation and a bad form of regulation. I think the sexual harassment, sexual assault really went overboard in threatening due process and freedom of speech. But athletics was going to be my example of good regulation uh, because I saw my daughter and her friends benefit from the increase in athletic interest. Um, I insisted upon putting the cover on the cover, a lacrosse stick, because my daughter played the. Both the j v College lacrosse and high school lacrosse, so i'm a big supporter of uh, of girls and women being more involved in athletics. I became much more of a critic because of feature of the regulation that I consider quite pernicious, which is the almost exclusive focus on varsity sports uh, I think that this Uh, puts undue emphasis on the most competitive level of athletics. I think it undid a much healthier female version of what athletics could be that was prevalent in the 1970s. And to put it graphically, that because of the pernicious influence of the NCAA trying to take over women's sports, they brought all of the... Corruption, and I use that word advisedly. Corruption of men's college sports into the women's arena. So that's kind of my the basic point I would make. But let me kind of I I should back up here. Um, Why was athletics always so controversial? Um, It was controversial because we didn't say for athletics, as we say in an English class or political science class or any other class go in and compete, and we're going to take away the barriers that used to prevent women from entering this field. We said the standard in athletics is going to be separate but equal. So then the question is, what's equal? Um, You can look at number of participants. You can look at number of teams. You can look at amount of spending. Those are all possibilities that were considered. One of the really confounding things in college sports is football. Why? Because college football teams have 100, 120 team members of the team. There's no female equivalent. So that one of the questions is, for every football team, do you have five or six women's teams? How do you – you really can't just count teams. And you can't count money because – Football and basketball cost a lot, especially football is enormously expensive, but they also bring in revenue. So that's complicating. And I would also say that um, schools really fudge all the numbers um, and they exaggerate the extent to which, especially football, brings in money. In most schools, football is a big money loser, despite what colleges say. So then the question became, well, how do you count these things? Uh, The schools, uh, the regulations focused on varsity athletes, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is that they're easy to count. Second, you don't have to figure out how do you compare um, a a, a yoga class with a football team. Uh, And another reason is because the NAACP, after trying to kill Title IX in the 1970s, figured we can't eat them, we're going to take them over. Um, And what does the NCAA do? The NCAA sponsors the most competitive sports. And that's what they did with women's sports. Um, They said, we run, you know, the most competitive levels. There were a number of women's groups that signed on to this. One was a women's sports foundation that is made up of professional women athletes. So they saw this as a way of turning colleges into farm leagues for professional women's teams in the same way the NFL and the NBA do that. Um, and then there were other women's groups who weren't so dedicated to sports, but I think decided that the visibility of college sports was a great way of changing stereotypical understandings of women's passivity and weakness of changing women's understanding of women's role. So they, they went along with this, um, And all the focus turned on the most competitive levels. And I just emphasize that that at at large schools, take the University of Texas at Austin, there are about 300 male and 300 female varsity athletes and tens of thousands of students. So just really focusing the the effort and the money and recruiting on a tiny, tiny number of, of students. Um, And the reason I've become so disenchanted with this is, um, especially after reading two books by William Bowen and his co-authors about college sports. And in a nutshell, what they found was in the 1970s, female athletes in college had similar records to non-athletes, did just as well in school, were more likely to go to graduate school and were more likely to make more money um, and the, because they tended to be um, more aggressive uh, and more self-confident. After Title IX took hold, when you had more recruiting, more scholarships, uh, by the 1990s and early 2000s, they found that the same problem that characterized male athletes now characterized women. They got huge admissions boosts and therefore their high school records were much weaker than non-athletes. They did even worse than their high school records would predict in college. Um, The, the basic performance of them overall in academia was, was far worse than non-athletes. And I should also say, this is going to surprise most people that, um, The proportion of minority students that get athletic scholarships uh, and get significant athletic boosts is significantly less than the proportion of of minority students in the undergraduate population as a whole. So, in other words, the people who are being who are benefiting from these changes were primarily white women, not minorities. So, in all of these ways, uh, and particularly because this really creates strong incentives for women and for girls to focus more on one sport rather than on academics. I think it had pernicious effect, especially when you consider the opportunity costs, which are who didn't get to go to school. It tends to be women who are excelling academically and women are excelling academically at much higher rates than guys. Um, The the success of women and all levels of education is really enormous, um, and that um, educational opportunity should be at the heart of what Title IX is about. So that's my polemic about um, about the, the, the problems of focusing on the most competitive
1: level of athletics. So one of the questions that I had in, in your discussion of athletics, um, so a lot of the sort of issues that you raise um, have to do with funding, right? So um, you kind of talk about how, because title IX sort of uh, regulates schools into, you know, whether they have to create a, a parody to men's sports or, you know, you kind of lay out various scenarios, but it all leads to, you know, spending more money in athletics than maybe other areas. And my question was, you know, that seems to be an issue that may not be totally at the feet of Title IX, right? That sort of is a larger issue of public school funding and university funding. So what is sort of the tension there, right? So, um, If you were to, I guess, I don't know if it's fixable, but I guess, could that problem be fixed solely via Title IX reform, or is it a bigger problem? Is that...
0: Yeah, very good good. Um, It's part of a bigger problem. Uh, I don't think that we're going to have much change in the Title IX regulations unless it is coupled with a reevaluation of the role of athletics in college overall. Let me just say that I'm going to talk primarily about college, but one of the things I think the Obama administration did well and deserves praise on is that they started taking a closer look at athletic opportunities at the high school and elementary school level. There are some real problems there, uh, in part because the disparity between male and female opportunities is quite large and it's especially large at schools with uh, high concentrations of minority students. There are big differences between States uh, and to the extent that, uh, that schools have to address this issue at the elementary and high school level. I think that's good. So let me return to college. The, um, Title IX does not require more spending on athletics in form. In practice, it really does, for the reason that it is politically extremely difficult to eliminate men's teams. Now, it has happened. In the 1990s, there were a lot of so-called minor men's teams that were eliminated Uh, in order to free up, do one of two things free up money for women's sports or to reduce the number of men's so you didn't have to increase women's sports by as much. So there are a lot of swim teams, wrestling teams uh, and uh, other less visible teams that were eliminated. Uh, Many people get very upset about this. (laughs) I will admit I don't care. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, so some uh, re- there weren't as many re- college wrestlers. Well, that's the way things go. But the the problem was that this cre- created so much opposition that um, proponents of women's sports realized that the best way politically to accomplish what they wanted to do was to hold steady the number of men and increase the number of women. And how do you do that? Spend more. Uh, the Office for Civil Rights said that discontinuing men's teams is a disfavored practice. And uh, Betty uh, spoke to for women's group saying, we oppose effort to cut men. This was, I say, a politically sensible thing to do. Um, Always expand the pie, don't cut down the size of the pie. Um, But they acted as though there were no cost to this. But the cost, obviously, had to come out of something else. Um, And the president of Brown University, who was the most vociferous on this, said, why should I spend more on athletics rather than on uh, academic scholarships, on libraries, on assistant professors, Uh, And that, I think, is an excellent question that never got answered because it was politically advantageous simply to pour more money in. And, of course, the NAACP thought this was wonderful. We came up with lots of opportunities for spending more money on women's sports. They call the so-called emerging sports. That's what they call them. Many people call them white girl sports, things like equestrian that are only done at fancy suburban and prep schools. So um everyone who was most vocal on this issue could agree that we needed more resource for athletics, and the people who were paying the cost of this didn't really weren't really very engaged in the debate on Title IX. So on the one hand, is was this a result of Title IX itself? No. Was it a result of the form regulations took Coupled with the politics of the issue, I'd say yes.
1: Right. And uh, I think, you know, transitioning to the sort of second part of the second half of the book, um, talking about sexual harassment, sexual assaults. And I think, you know, that has become sort of a Title IX issue that may, at least in the recent news stories, start to eclipse how, you know, athletics in terms of how people think of Title IX, because of, and you describe this in your book, sort of the um, the ways in which the Obama administration sort of used this sort of institutional leapfrogging in Title IX to, you know, go after the problem, sexual harassment, sexual assault. So in what way um, has Title IX sort of shifted over time in terms of its dealing with sexual harassment, sexual assault on campus. And, you know, you also bring up how they borrow from other civil rights legislation to do that. So I think going into that would be useful.
0: Sure. Yeah. This is a complicated area. So let me start with the last thing you said, borrowing from other areas of civil rights law. There was virtually no, mention of the problem of sexual harassment or sexual assault under Title IX for 25 years. That is until around 1995. In those years, there were two things that really brought attention to the problem of sexual harassment in schools. One was the general increase in attention to the problem that uh, got a lot of media attention in the Clarence Thomas and Nita Hill hearings. There were a number of studies, um, not particularly scientific, but studies by the AAUW and by um, a, a, a magazine for teenagers um, that said that this was a common occurrence, especially in high schools. Uh, and then there were there was important Supreme Court decisions in 1992 that said when schools. Overlook the problem of sexual harassment. In this case, in the case that came before the court, it was a really horrendous case of a teacher um, uh, basically in being involved in statutory rape with a student. Um, and the, the school looked the other way. And the court said, under Title IX, if you look the other way, then you are liable for damages. The schools got really concerned about this. When, what are our responsibilities? Um, when can we, can we be sued for damages? Uh, and they really said to the Office for Civil Rights and Department of Education, we need guidance on this. So um, trying to figure out what to do, the Office of Civil Rights looked at regular, uh, rules that had been developed under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act that prohibits Employment discrimination on the basis of sex. And these had been debated and developed over basically over a, a 20 year period. And the rules that eventually con- gelled, especially after Supreme Court decisions in the late 1990s, was that they took a tort based approach. That schools have the responsibility for establishing policies, defining and outlawing sexual harassment. They have to prevent, gr- provide grievance procedures. They have to respond promptly and uh, effectively to complaints that are being lodged. Uh, if they do all of these things, they can't be sued for damages. Um, but if they uh, don't do these things, they can be sued. And the idea was, let's say, two things were at the heart of it. One was that most sexual harassment and sexual assault was refu- was a result of a few bad apples, almost entirely male, that um, uh, schools had to deal with and employers had to deal with. And second, that uh, if you change the incentives to the threat of damages, that's going to do the trick. You'll get institutions to change. Um. The A really crucial event came in the late 1990s with two Supreme Court decisions under Title IX that really... Um, limited liability of schools quite dramatically. So the, their liability was significantly less than employers. Women's groups, law, law review authors really attacked this and said this is way too lenient, and it encourages schools to stick their head in the sand and not recognize what's going on. Um, and uh, in, on the very last day of the Clinton administration, OCR issued new rules and say we're going to divert from the Supreme Court. We're not going to follow. This is kind of the opposite of leapfrogging. We're not going to follow them. We're going to have our own set of rules. But, of course, there was, it was not clear how they would ever enforce this. Um, so that was the hit, kind of a deviation from the ordinary process of leapfrogging. Um, there was really no enforcement of these new, more uh, demanding rules until 2011, with when the, the Obama administration issued new rules that were then amplified in 2014, and they dealt with the enforcement problem by saying, we're not going to rely on the courts. Of course, we're not going to use the other main enforcement tool, which is the funding cutoff. And I should say parenthetically that the, the only enforcement mechanism created by Title IX was the funding cutoff. Pretty draconian. The number of times that enforcement tool has been used since 1972 is zero. I just want to emphasize that. The funding cut off has never been used, and it will not work. It's too administratively cumbersome, politically dangerous. It's likely to hurt the people you're trying to help. Um, So they had to come up with a new enforcement mechanism. uh, If you can't rely on the courts, and that was the investigation. Previously, the investigation um, of a complaint that was filed by the Office of Civil Rights had two features. One feature was it focused almost always on the particular individual complaint. And number two, it was the, the investigation was not publicized until it was resolved. The Obama administration said, number one, we are going to publicize all of these investigations from the beginning. And we're going to start with some of the most prestigious schools that value their reputation. And number two, every individual complaint would become uh, the the trigger of a full-scale investigation of the entire institution that could take months or even years. Some of them took two or three years. And they were very costly for the institution, both in terms of administrative costs and reputation. So they basically used these, uh, as they say in criminal justice, the process was the punishment. Um, and it induced schools to sign legally binding agreements that usually built up very, very strong internal compliance offices, the office of the Title IX coordinator, um, and that became the enforcement unit that was very closely tied with the Office of Civil Rights. Sometimes um they were staffed by people who had just uh, left OCR. For example, Har- Harvard I immediately hired two key Title IX officers. Both of them had come, sent lawyers in the Office for Civil Rights. So that's basically the picture. Now, the, the, there are a couple of things I'll point out about the nature of the regulations. They were very extensive. Some of them were procedural um, the uh, use of preponderance of the evidence that I mentioned before, the rules about cross examination and lawyers. Most importantly, and I think too often overlooked, was the strong pressure the Office for Civil Rights put on schools to use the so-called single investigator model, which meant we have one investigator from the Office of Title IX that does the investigation and decides whether the person is guilty or innocent, and then recommends a punishment, uh, and that is unreviewable. Uh, and as many people have pointed out, the Title IX office has an institutional incentive to show they're tough on sexual assault and sexual harassment. So the idea that we have kind of independent adjudicators making decisions of guilt or innocent was completely thrown overboard. So that's one part, the procedural part. The second part, which I think also gets overlooked, is there are these major jobs that were given to Title IX offices uh, to engage in training to everyone in schools students, adjudicators, police, faculty, staff, everybody, repeatedly uh, to do climate checks, to see what the nature of the problem is, uh, to uh, to create allied student groups. So these Title IX offices became quite large, um, and Title IX regulations, another Dear Colleague letter, required them to be relatively independent of other uh, authorities within the university. So, um The training aspect of this, I think is crucial and more and more has put these title IX offices, um, into the instructional mode rather than simply, um, the adjudicatory mode.
1: And so one of the questions that I had, um, in this section of the book, so, and this is kind of a a complicated question that I don't think anyone has come up with an answer with yet. So I don't expect you to do it on the spot, but, one of the issues with um, sort of the how Title IX or the Office of Civil Rights has changed uh, the way that sexual harassment and sexual assault is investigated on campus is there is a concern about false accusations, right? And I think that everyone is sort of like, that would be bad to have a, a false accusation. Um, at the same time, it seems like the... And you kind of lay this out in your book how there are a multitude of reasons, often they're probably working at the same time of why uh, this may be underreported or not reported at all by a victim. You know, and, and I think there's this really interesting conversation happening, and I think at times it it they it kind of talk past each other. How on the one hand we don't want false accusations to become a problem. But at the same time, it seems like there is also not the same conversation of that happening about like an, one other victim, right. Of like, we don't want to have one more victim that could have, this could have been prevented. And so I, I wonder, do you see any remedy for this, this sort of push and pull within this regulatory process or do you think that it needs to it's a larger and you kind of lay out a socio-cultural context you know that that's kind of my question in this section
0: you know this is obviously a central question um and I'm, i don't have a solution to it let me just kind of make a couple of comments and might move us along a little bit i have been a critic of the Procedural requirements of OCR. I think the best uh, statements of the the problems has been in the reporting of Emily Yaffa in The Atlantic. She's had some terrific articles there. Um, And there are a lot of horror stories that are documented in great detail by Stuart Taylor and Casey Johnson in their book, The College Rape Frenzy. Many of the people who are critical of the OCR regulations say these should be handled in the criminal justice process. I disagree with that. I think it's entirely appropriate for schools to have their rules um, that are not subject to the very high burden of proof of beyond a reasonable doubt that is in the criminal justice process. So I don't support getting schools out of this. Schools have intermediate punishments short of sending people to jail. It could be expulsion. It could be other things. Um, and there's no one of the one of the reasons that um, people who suffer sexual assaults don't go to the police is because the burden of proof is so high, um, and they can be subject to you know, really. Um, Uh, Extremely harsh cross examination, as we recently saw in the Yale case. Um, So that's number one. This, This first point I make. Number two, I say one of the things that is really surprising when you look at the statistics of what's happening in schools is that the the number of complaints that are going to school adjudicators I find remarkably small. I mean, no matter. I I don't believe that one in five students are subject to serious sexual assault. I think that number is probably way off. But it's a heck of a lot higher than a number that are reported to school officials, which are really tiny. My hope is that the Me Too um, experience has made it more likely that women will report misconduct to authorities. But I think the one of the things that dissuades them, and we know this from a number of these climate surveys that have been done at universities, is that um, I, as strange as it is, even some of these very severe types of assault, that the women report they didn't report it because they didn't want to get the person into too much trouble. I mean, that seems bizarre, um, but that's what many, many women report. Um, To the extent that um, people think that the process is fair and that the punishments are not disproportional, then that might, let's just say might, lead more people to report things that really should be reported and should be punished. So that's my initial effort to try to say how the procedure can be um, reformed. To make it both fair and more effective, because right now I don't think it is very effective. It creates um, some injustices, and it doesn't have enough um, support to get people to complain about serious misconduct. So I think it misses on both scores.
1: Yeah, and I think I think you're right in the sense that it's a it's a larger conversation because I, I'm just thinking out loud about. The case with Aziz Ansari, where it seemed very, uh, there was a back and forth of what that actually constituted. Was it like some people categorized it as a bad date, the other, other side kind of categorized it as sexual assault? And there wasn't really a good conversation of how to sort of solve that impasse or like to have a larger discussion about what that actually was. And I think Until that happens, I think the problem that you pointed out is going to kind of persist, unfortunately. Um, Moving on to sort of, you know.
0: One more thing on that. This is a classic classic example of what happens when um, social norms break down. Uh, I think that there's been a change in social norms about sexual relations, especially on campus. Um, Things that used to be handled um, through inhibitions on both sides. Um, are now we expect to be, to be handled through formal legal procedures. And that's a really hard thing to do, especially with conduct that takes place almost entirely in private.
1: So I'll let you move on now. Right. Um, no, I just, I was going to move on sort of to the the last part of your book, um, where you sort of talk about, um, sort of the obstacles to retrenchment, um, and you kind of touched on this earlier um, with sort of the Trump administration and sort of their inability to do much of anything so far. Uh, but what sort of is kind of happening there in terms of, you know, these obstacles to retrenchment? And then you, at the very end of the book, um, you sort of end about uh, talking about um, sort of what you would recommend going forward and, um, in this new administration uh, kind of hopefully speaking
0: <laughs> you know um most of this book i wrote uh, the first draft i wrote before uh trump was elected <laughs> this came as a, a great shock to all of us um so i had to kind of uh add a lot of stuff towards the end uh, let me just say first on retrenchment there's a very elaborate um and i think excellent political science literature on why Retrenchment is hard and as uh, um, people develop expectations around existing programs uh, they develop interests around them uh, people re- uh, respond much more aggressively to perceived losses than to possible gains. Our institutions make changes of policy difficult uh, all of these things can be seen in athletics why why am I not? Uh, more optimistic about changes in athletics well you have all of these groups who have built teams associations jobs around the existing format and all of them will be threatened by change, and all of them will fight tooth and nail to prevent change but that in a nutshell is why retrenchment is hard um on top of this and i'm i'm i try not to get too wound up by my anti-Trump animus. But the Trump administration has such contempt for expertise that it is incapable of putting people in place who can do a job of trying to figure out how to fix things. Um, now, I will say that I, when the Trump administration nominated ken marcus to be head of the office for civil rights i was stunned because i thought i was a pretty good nomination he's knowledgeable he's experienced he's moderate um but of course he's having a hard time getting uh confirmation in congress in part because the democrats don't trust anything the trump administration does and you know i guess i you know why should they um you know, here is why, why should they try? I mean, I, you know, I guess I'll wound up. But why should anyone trust the president who has bragged about committing assault and who has repeatedly demeaned women to do anything sensible on this topic? Right. So that's the problem. Now, what, what I think they should do, and I hope they will do, um, is to really go through an orderly notice and comment rulemaking process, have broad public participation. Present a, a, explain what they want to change, and then after they hear these comments and hold public hearings, explain what they want to do in the end. Um, I think that would be a tremendously refreshing process um, and um, would allow us to get a better handle on things like how prevalent is various, various forms of sexual assault, um, what are the experience with different procedures. So I... I I think in the long run, if the Department of Education goes that route and somehow manages to put competent people in charge, that will be beneficial. Um, and I would say that, you know, maybe the Trump administration could do something right. Uh, you know, I'd say the old, you know, the broken clock is right twice a day. Maybe this would be one of the, the examples.
1: Right. And, you know, we've taken a lot of your time and I'm, I'm really appreciative of that. So I just want to end with this sort of two part question. So, you know, and I encourage people to pick up your book. Um, It's really, at least for me, that isn't someone that is more on the legal side of education is very informative. Um, And if they were, when they read this, what would be sort of the one takeaway you would hope People to get from the book, and then are there any other book recommendations that you would have if they want to dive deeper into this topic?,
0: I guess what I would what I'd like people to take away is to understand what I call the transformation of Title IX was a fundamental change in purpose. We started out aiming this law at eliminating institutional barriers to women's education, and fortunately, that was done quite quickly. With really remarkable results, as I said, women are outpacing men at virtually every stage of the education process. Um, I'm pretty sure that's going to continue. Um, that's just been terrific. It's not only made the, our world fairer, but it's also has uh, unleashed enormous talent. So, the purpose of Title IX originally um, was was terrific, and we have made remarkable progress. The transformation was to focus much more attention of trying to use schools to transform stereotypes about gender in all aspects of society. That's much more ambitious. It has been transmuted to say we have to have changed people's view of what sex is, what sexuality is. I don't think that's a proper role for the federal government under a very big statute with a very small um, staff. And the one thing I hope that eventually we do is to refocus emphasis on what is good for the education of women. I think that what we've done in athletics is not good for the education of women. Um, and engaging in vast culture wars, I don't think are good for women. But I say, if I could have any effect it would be to refocus the debate on that crucial question. um, on other readings, um, this is, uh, you know, you asked me about this at the beginning. I probably should have given a little more uh, thought to it. Um, the, uh, I, I mentioned um, a couple of um, authors who have written on the sexual harassment issue. Um, Emily Yaffa, Casey Johnson, uh, Stuart Taylor. Um, there's an excellent book, I think, underappreciated book by Welch Suggs. S-U-G-G-S. We used to write for, it would be a reporter for, um, the Chronicle of Higher Education, called A Place on the Team. Um, that's a very good book on athletics. Um, and also this, these, this two-volume work on college sports, um, by William Bowen, former president of Princeton, and co-authors. Really an excellent study of both women and men's sports. Um, so I guess that would be my list of recommendations, and um, I, I, I encourage people in gender studies to learn more about the legal and political aspects.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree, I think it'd be it's a useful tool to put in your toolkit, um, especially when talking about or sort of formulating ideas around gender equality or gender equity or, or the like. Um, but Professor... Can okay. I put in
0: a plug for yeah, one more yeah. article? Uh, uh, two Harvard Law professors, uh, Jacob Gerson and uh, uh, G. Suk Gerson, wrote this great article in the California Law Review called The Sex Bureaucrats. So I, I would encourage you to be able to take a look at that. Too.
1: Yeah, no, thank you for those, those recommendations. And again, I want to thank you for joining us. And um, I encourage everyone again to check out Um, the Transformational Title IX Regulating Gender Equality in Education. Professor Melnick, thank you again for joining us.
0: Well, thank you for both giving me an extended period of time to talk about it and asking such
1: good questions. All right. have Have a good one.